nice to see so many familiar faces here in the audience. Quite a few Forest Service retirees, which is a little bit intimidating. Um, I did just retire from the Bitterroot in, in March. And uh, yes, my job was to uh, take care of what I called the forest attic. And that was everything from the old building preservation uh, to archiving uh, the historic uh, records that we had here on the forest and doing the archaeology in between. So a colleague once referred to me as a dirt historian, so I think that works <laughs> Anyway, I'd like to start off today because I know some of you folks are not from this part of uh, uh, the valley or Montana. We are right there where the red dot is, and the large pork chop shaped uh, uh, green line is the Bitterroot National Forest as it exists today. And it's undergone quite a few boundary changes over the years. And I'm not going to get into the weeds with all of those boundary changes and things, but I just wanted you to be aware that it is now about 1.6 million acres, and a third of the forest is in Idaho, which always seems to come as a surprise, even to other people in the Forest Service. <laughs> so it uh, makes for some interesting uh, administrative experiences when you're dealing with uh, two different state governments and sets of state agencies. Anyway, um, the 1891 Forest Reserve Act was only 68 words, which has got to be, you know, really kind of neat compared to what the legislation nowadays is. And with 68 words, they managed to create 15 reserves of 13 million acres. Now, those early reserves were under the Department of Interior the General Land Office, which for those of you that remember your high school history, the General Land Office was probably one of the most corrupt agencies the United States government has ever had. Um, but they were charged with uh, disposal of the public domain, getting it into private ownership via the Homestead Act and other legislation, and there was an awful lot of graft uh, and corruption involved in that. Anyway, the General Land Office, Department of Interior, was given responsibility for the early reserves. And a lot of people think that, okay, this is where she jumps to 1897 and the Washington's Birthday Reserves, which is what the Bitterroot Forest Reserve was part of. But what a lot of people don't know is there was an earlier reserve here in Bitterroot Valley that did come under protection of federal legislation, and that was at Lake Como. And that occurred in 1892. The U.S. Land Commissioner for Montana withdrew from settlement uh, a five-mile square around Lake Como. And for those of you that, let's see. Yeah, we'll come back to that here in a minute. Um, for those of you that are not familiar, this is Lake Como. It's a really scenic area. And even in the 1890s, it was a very popular resort uh, retreat for folks here in the Bitterroot Valley. The big 4th of July celebrations were held out there. Um, there was a, they called it a hotel, it was really a series of, of wall tents operated as a private resort, and a saloon and a dance hall out there. Now, this was unsurveyed land, so it was on public domain, but in those days, heck, nobody cared. Um, so it was a pretty big party spot for, for the valley. And they wanted it set aside there was, by uh, the 1890s, a lot of logging going on in the valley. And a lot of it, uh, by the uh, middle 1890s, uh, from the valley floor to the mid-slopes, from much of this whole west side, had been largely clear-cut um, by the Anaconda Copper Mining Company for its subcontractors. 
I want to go back here real quickly. Uh, <laughs> I'm always hit with this. Uh, there, for some reason, there's folks here in the valley that think that it is the Forest Service's fault that Bitterroot is one word. <laughs> I, I want to address that. I've got a chance to do that. <laughs> okay, from 1897 to 1907, we were the Bitterroot Forest Reserve, two words. 1907 and 1908, we were the Bitterroot National Forest, two words. 1908 to the present, it was one word. Now, it's true that probably the Deer Lodge National Forest became Deer Lodge, one word, much to the offense of those of us that lived in Deer Lodge, um, because a Forest Service cartographer uh, was trying to save space on a map. <laughs> Now, I sometimes hear that as an explanation for what happened here in the Bitterroot. But I can tell you that by 1908, by the time that the uh, uh, federal proclamation made it the Bitterroot National Forest, one word, that single word usage had been common since at least uh, the turn of the century. So the Forest Service making it one word came along probably after it was pretty much in general usage here in the back. I just wanted to clear that up. <laughs> anyway, um, by 1897, uh, February 22nd, uh, 13 reserves were created, including the Bitterroot Reserve. They are called the Washington's Birthday Reserves. And the original reserve, quite a bit different from the modern forest. The original reserve uh, ran from the foothills here in the west side of the valley. Again, the red star is where Hamilton is. Um, way over into Idaho and all the way down to the Salmon River. Uh, the modern forest does have a portion down on the Salmon River, but not near the extent of, of what's there today. Um, this takes in a lot of what's now the modern Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, uh, almost all the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness uh, that exists today, um, which are, are Parts of it are in the Bitterroot Forest. But the original reserve was uh, a total of about 4,147,000 acres. And only 690,000 of that was in Montana. So the original reserve was largely an Idaho uh, entity. I mean, 1896, the year before the reserve was created, um, Gifford Pinchot came to Montana and uh, he spent three weeks in the Bitterroot Mountains, both in Montana and Idaho, uh, along with uh, military officer George Ahern and uh, another gentleman by the name of uh, Henry S. Graves. And the three of them were scouting uh, lands that would be suitable to be included in a new reserve. So Pincher was here looking around at the Bitterroot, and it was largely his decision that, that created the uh, uh, Forest Reserve as we know it from 1897. Now these new reserves were highly controversial. They took a lot of land, uh, reserved a lot of land from settlement. And in the Bitterroot Valley that was not very popular. And I want to mention in particular, there was a strip here along the west side of the valley that took in a lot of the foothills and the, the lower areas of timber uh, that were pretty highly prized. Uh, the timber stands, the Ponderosa pine stands there had not yet been cut, and uh, they were uh, literally lusted after by both uh, the Anaconda Company 
and a lot of the uh, smaller uh, uh, operators here in the valley that wanted to get, get in there and get that timber cut. Um, settlers, homesteaders, also wanted to take up claims under the Timber and Stone Act. And I had hoped that my other presenter here today was going to talk about the Timber and Stone Act and the abuses of it. Um, so I'm going to give you a very, very oversimplified version of it. So please understand, I, I'm, I'm not a scholar of that particular topic. But under the Timber and Stone Act, you could take up a homestead, uh, presumably to take the timber or use stone, quarry stone from it. And this was for lands that were not particularly suited to agriculture. But what happened was the Timber and Stone Act was heavily abused, both by big timber operators and uh, local residents here in the valley. What happened was, in order to get their hands on public land, uh, the Anaconda Company would pay local residents to take up a timber and stone claim uh, on, on, I'm not sure if it was 40 acres or if it was a larger amount. So they would pay the filing fee. They also arranged a mortgage arrangement through the local company-owned bank, all right? So the individual gets his claim, the company comes in, cuts the timber that it wants, and then through this mortgage arrangement, the land then reverts into private ownership, not from, to the claimant, but to the Anaconda company. Okay, yeah, so this was, and, and there are land fraud cases that come out of all of this, and I'll try to touch on those a little bit later. But that was going on big time here in the valley. And it's been one of the interesting things, uh, particularly some of you local folks are familiar with the West Side project that we had uh, proposed uh, over here prior to the Roaring Lane fire in, in August. Um, and a lot of the areas, a lot of that area, were part of these land scheme things. Anyway, um, by 1897, uh, the controversy was, was pretty much throughout the West about all the reserves, not just the Bitterroot. And uh, Congress decided that they were going to rein in uh, the proclamation that created those reserves a little bit. So they uh, uh, decided to pass legislation requiring the reserves be surveyed and agricultural land excluded uh, prior to the reserve boundaries being formalized. And it's surprising to me that only a week after Congress passed that legislation, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey had their crew here in the Bitterroot Valley ready to start surveying both the Montana-Idaho state line and the boundaries of the new reserve. And this is a picture of the uh, uh, original survey crew. It doesn't have all the packers, but it has the cook in white, and uh, the linemen, the chainmen, some of the other surveyors. Uh, anybody local recognize where that is? It's out here at Grantsdale. And Grantsdale is a town that was here before there was a Hamilton. Um, Hamilton was a result of the Anaconda Company big lumber mill. Again, for those of you not local. Okay, these surveyors <laughs> faced a lot of obstacles. <laughs> 
And a lot of the surveyors and their support were local folks. They were people whose family names are still present in the valley. So uh, every so often somebody will come in and say, well, you know, I had a great grandfather that worked with the survey. Do you know anything about that? I love to show them this picture. <laughs> <laughs> the surveys were still underway when the first uh, forest reserve rangers were hired. And this photograph, we believe, is uh, the first class of Bitter Reserve Rangers uh, in 1898. Um, actually, this, this picture was 1899. We think the guy with the owl is the first reserve supervisor, uh, J.B. Weber, who was from Kansas City, a political patronage appointee. He knew nothing about forests, about fighting fire, about grazing, about anything. He simply uh, uh, gotten the job kind of as a, as a sinecure through uh, his political connections. And we're also pretty certain that the two gentlemen in the middle, we believe that this is Hank Tuttle and that this is Than Wilkerson. Uh, we think that one of these two is W.H. McCoy. And I just mentioned that because they are rangers that stayed with the Bitterroot for a long, long time. Okay, Than Wilkerson and Hank Tuttle were assigned uh, an area of about 500 square miles um, at the southern end of the forest, and their headquarters was at a place called Alta. It was a mining camp. Uh, they had a lot of problems with timber trespass and timber theft occurring at Alta because the miners were just, you know, I mean, they were there doing their thing, and public land, free for the taking, let's just take what we need. Now, this is a chance for me to correct something else. For a long time, the Forest Service has said that this is a photograph of Alta in 1899, the ranger cabin, which it is, and that this is Than Wilkerson and this is Hank Tuttle. That is not so. Uh, with help from the Tuttle family and photographs that they have, we know that this is Hank Tuttle. Than Wilkerson took the picture. <laughs> <laughs> old Forest Service uh, documents. So in fairness to Than, uh, that's Than Wilkerson. <laughs> anyway, Wilkerson was uh, uh, a Bitterroot native, uh, came out of the old Missouri stock. A lot of Bitterroot was settled by Missourians who left after the Civil War. And, and they were anti-Union Missourians which may explain a little bit about Ravalli County politics. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Hank Tuttle was a buffalo hunter and uh, scout for the U.S. military uh, before he came to the Bitterroot Valley. And uh, uh, these two men were, were, were pretty hard scrabble types. Uh, they were woodsmen. They weren't foresters. They weren't trained in silviculture or anything modern rangers had. Uh, but they were sent out to do a whole lot of different uh, tasks. I just wanted to show Alta today because it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And for those of you that are from out of town, uh, if you have time, it'd be great to drive up there. It's south of here in the West Bay. Question? That's where I want. I was going to say, where is it at? Um, you just uh, drive south on 93, go up the West Fork Road, keep going south, past Painted Rocks Reservoir and eventually you'll come to a sign for Hughes Creek, you turn left, and uh, you'll see the cabin uh, about half a mile maybe down the road. Uh, we do fly a 40, 
4346 star flag there from uh, Memorial Day to Labor Day, uh, because that's the number of stars that were on the flag when the building was built. Um, the uh, Wilkerson family donated a flag to us a few years ago that they said was the original flag uh, bought out of the Rangers' own pocket money that flew over the cabin. Unfortunately, we counted the stars, and it had too many stars. So, uh, we think that it came from the Darby Ranger Station, which is where Van Wilkerson was stationed later. Um, but this is very typical of those, those early uh, Ranger cabins. Uh, the thing that's unique about it today, it is the oldest surviving building associated with our national forests. But it was never a Forest Service ranger station. Forest Service didn't come into being until 1905. This was built in 1899. And in 1904, uh, they discovered it sat on Pete Bennett's mining claim. And so the uh, 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 building was abandoned to Pete and he used it as part of his mining claim for a while. In 1941, the Hamilton Lions Club decided this was too historic a building to just be lit, sit, and rot. They acquired it from the family of Pete Bennett and donated it to the Forest Service. And it was listed on the National Register in the 1970s, and we try to take very good care of it. So, if you go out there, uh, please go in. Uh, you'll notice that the interior logs are covered with pencil and signatures. And, uh, the, the local rumor is that Gifford Pinchot's name is in there. I've never found that, but we did find Frank Finn and Charlie Powell and a whole lot of other uh, uh, folks that uh, are of note with regard to the Forest Service. So, uh, had to put my plug in there for all time. Okay, there were a lot of problems faced by these, these early rangers. I've already mentioned the, the uh, timber theft, um, grazing trespass, uh, a lot of squatters, people moving onto areas that was not surveyed. Uh, they didn't really have a legal right to it. Uh, the, uh, uh, this one in particular is out on, on the uh, Nez Perce Fork of the Bitterroot, and uh, probably about where the Little West Fork campground is. Yeah. Um, the Rangers also faced the fact that the General Land Office said that there should be no liquor sold on reserved lands. And when you have mining camps already in existence on reserved lands, um, you know, the rangers were being told they were supposed to, uh, you know, rein in that sort of thing. Um, the first tools that the Bitterroot Rangers, the, particularly the two on the, uh, uh, the south end there, Tuttle and Wilkerson, received were garden tools. They got a box of garden hoe and rakes. And uh, as uh, Tuttle's son wrote later, um, there was also signs that said campfires should not occur. Well, now think, 1899, and this is the West, and you're going to tell people they can't have campfires, when most of them are out there in the mining camps living in tents and stuff. Um, so there was, there was that little problem, that they were supposed to enforce that. They said they dumped the tools and the signs down a 60-foot prospect pit. Didn't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> They also received uh, warrants or appointments to be federal game wardens and to be a deputy state game wardens. And again, think, 1899, the West, the people living out there, 
Um, again, according to uh, Than Wilkerson, who wrote later, they sent the appointments back to Washington with a note saying, we hired on to work as rangers, not commit suicide. <laughs> anyway, the, the rangers were dealing with the stuff on the ground, but there were much bigger problems being faced um, in administration of the forest preserve. And those big problems were primarily the timber depredations that were occurring on public land and the problem of what to do with that reserve strip that I mentioned to you before. It was 150 sections, 150 square miles of land that people here in the valley wanted to settle on or to uh, otherwise turn to profit through land fraud. Um, so that was a real controversial issue. And the initial forest reserve supervisor, uh, Mr. Weber, that I mentioned to you, proved so unsatisfactory that uh, he was dismissed. Now, that's where E.A. Sherman comes in, and I forgive me if most of my talk gets taken up by Mr. Sherman, but this is a really interesting story. He was brought out here by the operations manager of the Anaconda Company, the operations manager for the Bitterroot Valley. He was brought out here to start a newspaper. Marcus Daly already owned the Ravalli Republican, and in those days it was the Ravalli Republican, not the Ravalli <coughs> Republican. It was a Republican newspaper, it was controlled by the Anaconda Company. The rival paper was Miles Romney's Western News, which not only was a Democratic paper, but it was virulently anti-company. And it was also a pretty popular paper in the Valley. <laughs> So the uh, daily interest, and the daily died in 1900, so we'll just refer to it as, as the company interest, uh, decided that they wanted to start a newspaper, a democratic newspaper, uh, that would also be favorable to the company. So they brought E.A. Sherman out, a young newspaper editor from Iowa, and Sherman's kind of interesting. He went to Iowa State, which had what would in those days pass as a forestry program, and he'd been in it. Apparently his family was involved with uh, tree nurseries and things like that in Iowa. Um, but he was a, at working as a newspaper editor. They brought him out here. One of his professors was a guy by the name of James B. Wilson. And he'd gotten to be best friends with that professor's son. Now, the thing you have to remember about James B. Wilson is his next job was Secretary of Agriculture under Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. So we're going to come back and talk about that in a second. Anyway, Sherman comes out from about uh, uh, late 1899, early 1900. Uh, he runs a, a Democrat newspaper, the Valley County Democrat, for about two years. Um, they didn't succeed in running Miles Romney out of business. <laughs> and for those of you that know local history and know anything about Miles Romney, um, he, he was a pretty formidable editor. Anyway, Sherman uh, uh, runs the Daily Mattress newspaper for a couple of years, and then uh, Mr. Weber gets fired, basically. And Mr. Sherman winds up as the supervisor of the Forest Reserve. Now, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, this is at the time when Rose the Teddy Roosevelt administration and Gifford Pinchot were in the process of moving the reserves from corrupt general land office in the Department of Interior 
into the Bureau of Forestry, which would soon become the Forest Service, uh, in the Department of Agriculture. You know, whether his connection with James Wilson had anything to do with that, I don't have any documentation, but, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to, to figure that out. But the Anaconda Company connection is also kind of interesting to me. Um, because as editor, he was very pro-company. Well, I mean, he probably had to be the company controlled the paper. So it's easy to say, oh, you know, the company gets one of their guys in as head of the Forest Reserve, just as the Forest Service is putting together its first big timber sale out near Lake Como. It's called the Lake Creek Timber Sale. And the company wanted that timber, and they wanted it very badly. So it's very easy to write off Sherman and say, okay, he was the company henchman. Uh, K. Ross Tool referred to them as people with little beady eyes and very grasping hands. And it's easy to say that. But his later career tells us something entirely different. Um, he had gone back. He, he got advance word that the reserves were to be moved into Department of Agriculture. And again, I don't think it takes you know, much of a brain to figure out. He probably got that word from one of the Wilsons. He went back at his own expense to Washington, D.C. Uh, he met with uh, Congressman Joe Dixon, and he met with the Wilsons. Uh, the younger Wilson was his father's personal assistant in the Department of Agriculture. And Congressman Dixon arranged for him to meet Gifford Pinchot. So he had a meeting with Gifford Pinchot. And he comes back out to Montana, and while there's still a few things in, in his, his uh, uh, record that lead us to, to question things like he took up a timber claim himself and then wrote to Gifford Pinchot after the fact saying, I did this, is it okay? Yes. Pinchot's uh, person wrote back and said, no, it is not okay. Uh, you have to surrender the timber claim. But, but really, from about that time on, we start seeing a change in what he does. In his later career, he goes from being the Bitterroot Forest Reserve Supervisor to being what would now be called a regional forester. And from the regional forester here in Montana, he went to California. He was put in charge of the Sequoias. And from there, he became an associate chief of the Forest Service. And it's interesting, but he was one of the very earliest advocates, both for recreation as a valid use of the national forest, not just natural resource, um, you know, development, but recreation. And he was one of the very earliest advocates for wilderness. So his later career kind of uh, uh, sort of takes a right turn or left turn or whatever. I shouldn't use those terms. That <laughs> um, but uh, Sherman's a very interesting character, and I hope to do more research on him and, and on his career. But what Sherman was dealing with at the time that he becomes uh, the last reserve supervisor and, and the first uh, national forest supervisor on the building is the Anaconda Company activity. And this photograph, I, I think, is fascinating. It's taken in 1909. But what it shows is the area of public domain that had been illegally cut by the Anaconda Company prior to the uh, enforcement of the reserve boundary. And that's these slopes. And there's lots of other photos that show the same thing. Uh, an early newspaper reporter from about uh, uh, 1908, about a year after the uh, uh, timber sale was let, um, said there wasn't a vertical stick of wood standing for miles around. This 
was the Lick Creek timber sale, or a very small portion of it. This shows the area that was cut under Forest Service Administration. So there's a pretty stark difference. Um, the timber sale itself, and again, I had hoped that our other presenter today was going to talk a little bit more about this. Um, when the timber sale was put up, Pinchot was determined that this was going to show the nation that sustainable forestry worked, that you could manage a forest and still have trees standing on it, that it wasn't all going to be clear-cut. And Pinchot was undoubtedly aware of Sherman's connection with the Anaconda Company because there's a letter that we have on our files over here at the forest where Pinchot writes to Sherman saying that this sale is going to be put up, the timber is going to be sold, and then the land will be open for settlement in 40 acre parcels. But Pinchot is adamant of two things. One, that the Anaconda Company will have to bid on it just like everybody else. And the Anaconda Company's attitude was bid on timber that's it's in our bag. Yeah, it's our timber. It might be Uncle Sam's land, but it's our timber. Um, they were going to have to bid on it at the astonishing, to them, high rate of $4.01 per thousand board foot. Oh, okay. And the company said, no way, nobody's going to bid that. It's our timber, we're not going to bid. Well, Pinchot was determined they were going to have to compete with anybody else that wanted to bid on that timber. And he told Sherman, even if a small operator wants to bid on a small portion of the sale and meets our price, we will give them that portion of the sale. And this is just infuriating uh, uh, the Anaconda Company timber managers. Um, the other thing he made really clear to uh, Sherman was he Pinchot wanted the timber off that land before it was opened for settlement because he did not want this, this cycle of speculation and land fraud to continue. He said, the timber's gone, the people that will want that land are the people that will use it. They will be bona fide settlers, not people that are just in this for this quick turnaround of money. And Sherman uh, himself acknowledged later, uh, writing years later, that timber claims were one of the few real ways of easy money to be found here in the Bitterroot Valley um, in those days. So, you know, Pinchot obviously was aware of this, and he, was, he said this is not going to happen with Lickrick. So the Lickrick timber sale was put up for bid. The company refused to bid, thinking they, nobody would challenge them on it, and they'd get it at whatever price they wanted to pay the government. But a little outfit from Idaho, Hit and Melquist did bid on it and got, got the sale, thereby forcing the company who really wanted the timber for their mill here in Hamilton to buy it from Hit and Melquist at more than they would have had to pay the government. So I always thought that was one of the few times the company really got best. Mary? Yeah. Five minutes? Okay. Um, the Lip Crip timber sale, this is what it looked like two years after the cut. And uh, it's a pretty healthy Ponderosa pine stand. Um, Giver Pinchel himself came out to check the timber sale in 1908, I believe, um, to see how the layout was and to see how everything was going on. It was that important. 1910, you could still see 
Oops, excuse me. You can see the cutover slopes from the earlier Anaconda Company activity. The smoke is from the 1910 fires. However, on this forest, we were not as heavily impacted as the forest to the north and west. We had some fire, but, but we did not, we were not part of the big blow up. But you notice here in this picture, by 1910, a lot of the cutover lands were being planted with apples. And this gave rise to what was known as the Bitterroot Apple Boom. Um, the company still made money on, on the lands that it had acquired fraudulently. Uh, then they turned around and marketed them as apple orchard homesteads uh, to people from back east. And after making money selling the homesteads, then they also made money selling the irrigating water to people who were trying to keep orchards alive in places there maybe shouldn't have been orchards. Okay, I just wanted to show you what it looks like now. And that's, uh, you can see the conifers have come back in, all the cutover area up here. But we still have remnants of orchards here in the valley. We, we've stepped some producing orchards in the valley. Um, but you can still see the old orchards out there. We also, on the forest, have a lot of the uh, uh, remnants of the Anaconda Company logging activity. Um, I don't have a, a historic picture of the skid paths from the Bitterroot, but I do have one from the Lolo, and that's one of our skid paths uh, here on the Bitterroot. I see them, so that's what that is. It's a, skid a lot of them, yeah, are skid paths. They, they would run water in and ice it up so that the log would slide and the horses would, would be on the side, on that berm on the side. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really look like a ditch, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. What it is. Okay, after 1910, of course, the Forest Service mission really turns heavily into uh, fire detection, prevention, and uh, suppression. And so we start building a lot more permanent fixed guard stations. This is East Fork Guard Station, constructed in 1915. Um, this is the Blodgett Range Station in the 1920s. And these early stations were um, just built however local builders wanted to construct them. Um, I'm always uh, fascinated with the fact that one of the first things Sherman did back in, in uh, uh, 1906 as a, a forest supervisor was he was very proud of the fact he built four ranger stations, or five, five new ranger stations, at a total cost of $4.65 a piece, uh, including ranger labor. And uh, we unfortunately don't have any of those. They were little square hip-roof buildings. Uh, some of you may have seen them in Raidersburg and a few other places. Uh, we lost our last one uh, uh, several years back. Obviously, the ranger, rangers have gotten more help, more crews. Um, this is uh, Dan Wilkerson, who became the chief ranger for the forest. Um, a lot of other folks uh, uh, here in this picture have descendants still in the valley. I'm not going to try to identify people. But you can see that the, the crews grew larger. They got more manpower. And I've got to talk about Bill Bell. Uh, it may, I may run a minute over, but give me... <laughs> Everybody, every woman in this room knows who Sam Elliott is. <laughs> he played Ranger Bill Bell in The Ranger, the Cook, and Hole in the Sky. The Hole in the Sky is that canyon out there, Logic Canyon. And Bill Bell was a real ranger on the Bitterroot Forest, uh, remarkable uh, packer, uh, backcountry's woodsman, um, involved in a lot of things, including punching out his boss on his last day of work at Forest Service. He also has a great nephew that had a long Forest Service career. 
uh, I should, should say a nephew, and his great nephew is now the manager of our helicopter program here in the fire uh, program on Bitterroot. So, um, had mentioned Bill Bell. His family donated or allowed us to, to scan all of his photo albums. So we have incredible photos from the 1920s uh, of Volpe, Idaho, and Montana portion of the, of the forest. And uh, that's one thing that families of these folks have been so generous in uh, donating these images that really help. And that's a picture of Bill leading a, a pack string up a 1920s trail. And you can see we've come a long way in our trail management. <laughs> But Bell also reflected the period where the Forest Service was moving into motorized years. And uh, that's the early stock truck. <laughs> and I'm told, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm told that some of those Forest Service mules from that era were actually trained to jump from the ground up into the... And those roads that you had to haul those those stock trucks and stuff with that, I mean that's that's a road, that's a motor road. Um, that's over in the cellway. Uh, 1926, they built the first buildings at what is now Magruder Ranger Station. Um, they were still uh, uh, you know, the emphasis was on lookouts. This was an early Forest Service rag camp lookout. Uh, the lookout would uh, climb up, there's the firefinder come back down, uh, make his phone call, and that's what he lived in. <laughs> the Bitterroot had some of the very first women lookouts. During World War I, there was a shortage of manpower, and so a school teacher from Anaconda came over and wrote a wonderful feature story for the Anaconda Standard about her summer as a lookout here on the Bitterroot. Quite ahead of her time. Uh, as I said, the lookouts were all, again, this is that period where we didn't have standard plans for buildings. Things that happened on the forest were pretty individual, unique to each forest. <laughs> and that's uh, the Spot Mountain Lookout holding uh, rice pudding and some kind of pie. I can't remember what was written on that. Okay, we get into the 1930s, and I'm going to conclude with, with this. Quick few more slides. We get into standardized plans for Forest Service buildings, and I think it kind of reflects what happened to the agency in general. Um, more of our practices and policies, instead of being more unique to the individual forest or ranger district, um, began to be more standardized <coughs> on the national level. Um, you know, if you want to, you can call it a cookie cutter approach, you can say it's more efficient, whatever. But the L4 lookout uh, was designed by a Forest Service engineer. Uh, so that it could be assembled by any summer seasonal who could read and use a hammer. If you look at this picture, I think you figured out that guy could do a lot more than read and use a hammer. <laughs> um, that's Tom Donica, and uh, uh, he's waving from the top of a tower. This is the old St. Mary lookout um, from 1935, and the reason it doesn't still look like that is the high winds up there took that one down. That's what it looks like today, but it's still the standard L4 lookout. Um, and I won't run if, if the next gentleman needs the time. Great. We were able to achieve a lot of those standard plan constructions because of the CCC in the 1930s. So. Thank you.